From the moment that you step on the foot of U of A's campus, there is one day above them all that you are aiming for. One day that comes with greater anticipation, greater expectation than all the others. The day for which you stay up and you eat that fourth meal so you can cram for that test. The day when your parents wear the biggest smile for which they say, for which you say actually, it's finally done. What day am I talking about? Graduation day. All right. The point of why you're in college is to get to that final day, to walk across that podium, take your diploma, and go home, right? Now, though you may think that the greatest day, the biggest day for you is whenever you get asked out or you try to ask somebody out, you might think that's the biggest day, or whenever the professor calls off class, or when you thought that when COVID came back in March, the school was done and you didn't have to do anything else. You almost thought that was going to be the biggest day of college. It doesn't matter whether or not you're a freshman or you're a senior. Graduation day brings with it a sense of anticipation, a sense of expectation, a sense of longing and waiting, right? No matter if you're a freshman or a senior, you're wanting to get to graduation day so that you can be fully done with college. The day that you've been waiting and longing for when you can walk across that stage and grab your diploma and never have, to never have to take another class again. And yet, graduation day pales in comparison to the day that God became man. It pales in comparison. And Christmas serves really as a built-in yearly reminder of that. Before God became flesh, he'd been silent for hundreds of years. No prophets prophesying, no word from the Lord, just deafening, excruciating silence. People wondering, ultimately, if God had just given up on his promises. Before Christ, there was great anticipation. There was great longing. There was great expectation of a day when God would speak again, a day when the Messiah would come to deliver his people from the curse. The Gospel of Mark begins this way. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And what we see, many argue that Mark is the first gospel, not in order, like in order in terms of time, not necessarily in the New Testament, we know that's Matthew, but in terms of time, Mark probably came first. And yet out of that silence, out of that darkness came light, there came words, there came the word, ultimately. There came a messenger. Both the prophet Isaiah and Malachi foretold the day when a messenger would step on the scene and he would declare the arrival of the king. As we see in Mark, this messenger is John the Baptist, who came baptizing and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. A couple verses later, in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus steps on the scene. The Christ, the Messiah, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark is showing us that the wait is over, that the new covenant age of fulfillment has come and the promised salvation that the Old Testament anticipated has arrived with the king and his kingdom that he introduces. This kingdom really sums up the prophetic hope, the hope of the prophets, the hope of the people of God. It sums up the hope of God's people, where they would be with God 
in his place, living under his rule in his reign. This is the story of the Bible. So if you remember over the past couple of weeks, we looked at the covenant. We've been looking at covenants, right? But we know that ultimately, that's a bad ark. We know that ultimately, this, these covenants are really just upholding and unfolding the storyline of Scripture. So you've got a story, right, that moves like this. You've got a story going this way that's got characters and setting and everything else. But what you've got happening is, right here, you've got the first covenant, right? These covenants uphold and unfold the story. You've got God's covenant. Man, I should have just wrote this beforehand, but it's all good. Um, God's covenant of creation, right, in the garden with Adam. And then after that, you've got Noah. After that, you've got anybody else? Come on. Abraham, there we go. Adam, Noah, Abraham. Then you've got, good, Israel. After Israel, who you got? David, king of Israel, right? And then you've got, right here, the climax and resolution of all of history. You've got Jesus, the new covenant, okay? The new covenant. This is where we're at today. And the story the story that these covenants serve as like the backbone of, that upholds and unfold that story. The story is God's people, that God is about creating a people for himself in his place, under his rule and reign, right? Living under his rule and reign. Well, we could say his rule and blessing. That's what we're going to look at today. Okay, That's the story. The climax of that story is ultimately Christ. And so today what we're going to be looking at is how Jesus introduces the new covenant. And he does that through his own death and resurrection. We're going to look at what Jesus accomplished and how all of what, uh, how basically this story right here finds its fulfillment in Jesus, right? At the cross and resurrection of Christ. Next week, we're going to cover what that means for us as the church, as the people of God, okay? So this week, we're looking at Christ and how he fulfills the new covenant, introduces the new covenant um, for us through his death and resurrection. And then next week, we're going to look at us and all that that means for us as the new covenant people of God, okay? So today, what I want to do, and you're going to see that on your handout, is I just want to break, I want to break each part, each section of this down. I want to look at how Jesus is God's place, is God's people, God's place, and his rule and blessing. That's the breakdown this morning. I want to look at Jesus fulfills that storyline of scripture. So the first one that we're going to look at right there is God's people. God's people. So in the beginning, God creates the first couple, Adam and Eve, in his place, the Garden of Eden. Then he invites them to live under his rule and his reign. What did it mean to live under his rule and his reign? How did they do that? This is, this is uh, audience participation here. This is dialogue. How do they do that? How do they live under his rule and reign? Anybody? Okay, they were placed in the garden, but what did they need to do in order to live under that rule and reign? Okay. But why did they have to take care of the animals? Obey, because God told them to, 
right? And what I mean is take, what you mean by take care of the animals is rule over the animals. Yes, right? Subdue creation. Correct. So we saw the first week, okay, that Adam served as a representative of mankind. He is God's image bearer. And he was commanded by God to be fruitful and to multiply, have kids, and to rule over God's creation. And yet Adam refused to obey God's terms, and the couple were ejected from God's presence. And so after Adam, God begins to create a people for himself through Abraham. He promises Abraham that he'll make him into a great nation, and that nation is who? That nation is Israel, the descendants of Abraham. The Israelites were called by God to be a holy people that reflect his character to the nations through living in obedience to God's law. However, they failed to keep that law, and instead of reflecting God's character, they actually sin against him and actually reflect more of the character of the nations than they actually do of God. So as a result, they're kicked out of the promised land, and they're sent into exile in foreign lands, lands like Babylon, okay? And so God brings in foreign invaders to take over and subdue and occupy Israel's land, the promised land, and then they take Israel into exile. Judgment for their disobedience. However, where Adam and Israel, the people of God, failed, Jesus succeeds. And we see this first, that Jesus is the true Adam. You've got that there in your handout. Jesus is the true Adam. So when we talk about God's people, he's always had a people in his place under his rule and reign. That was Adam. And then you got Noah, and then you got Abraham, and then you got Israel, right? And now what we're seeing is that Jesus succeeds where they all failed. So in the Gospels, we see God taking on human flesh in Jesus, Jesus who is truly God, he's truly man, he was born a baby, Christmas time, that's what we celebrate each year, he wept, he slept, he ate, He had a hometown. He went to the bathroom. He got tired, and he died. In Luke 3, we see that Jesus descended from Adam. And like Adam, Jesus was tempted, and yet he didn't sin, as we see in Luke 4. He lived in perfect obedience to the Father, even to the point of death on a cross, as Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. On that cross, Jesus took the punishment for sin that you and I, as sinners, identified with Adam, right? He took the punishment that we deserved because we as sinners identified with Adam who serves as mankind's representative. And so Paul speaks about this very thing in Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. So let's open your Bible, and I want to think a little bit about Romans 5. So Romans 5, verses 12 through 14, and then we're going to look at verses 18 through 21. So someone read Romans 5, 12 through 14, and then 18 through 21. Looking at how in Adam, how he serves as our representative, as one who sinned before God, and yet how that reverses itself. So Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, and then verses 18 through 21. Who wants to read that? Aaron, did you say whoop whoop? Both of them, that'd be great. So 12, yeah, 12 through 14, and then 18 through 21. But if you did say whoop whoop, that's also cool as well. Yeah. 
All right. He's speaking about Christ right there. So right here, what, what do you have? You've got Adam, who serves as a representative of mankind. Adam is just one man, right? But then Adam sins, and as a result of that, he gets condemnation in death. And so you have one man, Adam, and yet he represents the many, that is, the human race, who live under condemnation and death because we all sin in Adam. Then you've got Christ. This is what Paul is talking about right here. But now you've got one who ultimately fulfills who Adam was supposed to be. You have Christ. You have the righteous act of Christ, that is his death and resurrection. And what does that secure? It secures justification and eternal life. Do you see the opposite? You have one man, Jesus now, and then you have the many, that is the church or those who are Christians. Y'all see the difference, right? You have a new representative before God. Romans 5.19 sums this idea up. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many, that is mankind, were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, that's Jesus' obedience, through his death and resurrection, the many will be made righteous. And the many that he's speaking about right there are all those who repent and trust in him. Those who sin live under the old humanity under Adam. Those who repent and trust in Christ enter into a new humanity, not in Adam, the sinner, as their representative, but rather to Christ, the righteous one, the true and better Adam, the second Adam, as often we talk about in theology. Not only is Jesus the true Adam, but he's also the true Israel. So we're continuing to think about God's people. We see it in Adam, now we see it in Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. We see this in the first couple chapters of Matthew, which is just fascinating whenever you start diving into Matthew and you begin to just follow uh, the logic of Matthew and how Matthew is speaking about how Jesus fulfills all the institutions of the Old Testament. And so in Matthew 2, Joseph and Mary take Jesus to Egypt when he was a child in order to protect him from being persecuted or really killed from King Herod, who wanted all the you know, babies born to and under to be slaughtered. Okay? This is kind of Christmas time. You hear about this story. In Matthew, 15, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, Matthew says this, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So what's Jesus, or what is Matthew doing right there? What's he doing? When we think of out of Egypt I called my son, who do you normally think of? The Israelites, right. But what is Matthew doing? Right? Jesus goes down, his parents take him down to Egypt to protect him from being killed by Herod. 
Then they're going to come back into the land. What is he doing? He's ultimately identifying Jesus as the new Israel, right? As the true Israel. Okay? He's the one that will bring about a new exodus from slavery to sin rather than Egyptian oppression. Okay? The prophet Hosea is referring to the exodus of the nation of Israel, and yet he's identifying now and applying it to Jesus as the true Israel. In the next chapter at Jesus' baptism, the father declares Jesus to be his beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. But Jesus is different from Israel. We see this in Matthew 4 with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by Satan. Let's look at that. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. So you've got the verse right before Matthew chapter 4 where this is my beloved son. Israel was called God's son. Adam was a son of God. But now we have the true son of God in Jesus. And all of a sudden you come to Matthew chapter 4 of Jesus' temptation by Satan. So somebody read Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Okay, so for our purposes, I want us to look at how this is similar to Israel and how it's different. That's dialogue. Look at the text. How is this similar to Israel? And just start shouting it out. This is not a coincidence, by the way. Matthew, having studied Matthew, Matthew is very particular on what he's doing right here. He's very intentional. How is this similar to Israel? Okay, they wandered in the wilderness after the exodus. Right, manna, right, that's, that's, that's getting at that idea, that's right. Shouldn't live by bread alone. Um, but then what else do you have right here? How many days did they, or how many years did they wander? How many days was Jesus in the wilderness? Yeah, yeah. What else? Temptation. That's exactly right. It was a testing. That wilderness time was a testing time to see what was in Israel, if they were going to believe God, if they were going to trust God. And so right here, right, we see similarities between Jesus and Israel. What's the difference? Perfect obedience. That's exactly right. Jesus succeeds everywhere Israel fails, right? 
He's the one that ultimately entrusts himself to the Father. Right here, as you see how he kind of he ends this, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. What else does he say? Right? We shall live by bread alone. They wanted other things. Israel wanted other things than bread alone. Right? They wanted meat. They wanted to go back into Egypt with all the goodies that they got whenever they were slaves in Egypt. They thought that was better than being with God out in the wilderness. And yet Jesus is showing that ultimately he is the one who is the bread of life, but yet also trust in the Lord, um, God alone, to be able to provide. And so he succeeds in every way that Israel fails. Not only that, look at the passage right after this. What is he doing? He's calling his disciples. How many disciples does he have? Twelve. How many tribes were there in Israel? Twelve. I mean, it's just like... Even his baptism. I mean, when you look at his baptism, look at this. John the Baptist prepares the way in chapter 3, and then comes Jesus' baptism, which mimics a Red Sea crossing moment where God delivers his people through judgment. What is baptism? Baptism is a sign, a symbol of judgment in one sense, and that when you are baptized under the judgment waters of God, you come up and you rise up alive, right? All of this is intentionally placed so that you would say, Ah, I see what's going on here. If you were a good Jew, you would know exactly what Matthew's doing right here. He's saying that Jesus is the true Israel. He's the one that succeeds where they failed. He's the true, obedient son of God, what the people of God were meant to be. And so he, he succeeds. Where Adam, where Noah, where Abraham, where Israel, where David, he succeeds where they all ultimately failed. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean? I'm not going to be able to get into everything that this means, okay? So I'm just giving you one thing right here. It means that our salvation is secure. It means our salvation is secure. Think about this. Because we've sinned against an infinitely holy God, our record, our rap sheet before God is infinite. Our record of sin debt that we owe to God is infinite. We cannot pay it back. But because Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father his record is perfect. And so he's the only one that could pay our infinite record of sin debt because his record was perfect. And so when you turn from your sins and trust in Christ, his perfect record is then credited to you. That's what, that's what uh, Paul was getting at in Romans 5 when he talks about how through one man's obedience, many are made righteous, meaning we have a right standing before God. God declares us right in his sight. We are, that's what we understand to be justification. We're justified before God because Christ takes our place as our substitute. He succeeds in every way that we have failed. I love how one theologian put it. He said, being in Christ means that all he has done for me representatively becomes mine actually. So do you ever doubt your salvation or lack assurance that you're saved? Do you feel the need? to try to earn God's favor, to get back in right standing with him because you screwed up royally over the past week. You ever feel that way? Well, recognize that you can't earn that favor, but there's one who already did. And that's a glorious truth. Why? Because he was perfectly obedient for you. Remember that your salvation is as secure as Jesus' perfect obedience. He succeeds in all the ways that you have failed. And so where do you turn when you're in sin. Well, why wouldn't, you turn, why wouldn't you ultimately turn to Jesus? 
whose perfect record has been credited to you. You're not going to go before God and try to earn favor, right? As if somehow you can, like, get that poor record resolved any other way outside of Christ. You're not going to do that. Instead, we can confess our sins knowing that the record of sins is forever forgiven because he has erased it. He's erased that record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. What Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. His death and resurrection secures for us an eternal salvation. That is your security. That's your assurance. So whenever your heart goes all over the place, you've got to remind yourself of what is sure, and that's ultimately found in the truth that Christ is our security. He is our assurance because he was perfectly obedient in all the ways that we failed. God's people were to live in obedience to him. They didn't, but Jesus did. He is the definition of what it means to be truly human as God intended. He's the only person who lived that didn't deserve to be banished from God's presence because of his perfect obedience. He's the true Adam in Israel. He succeeds where they fail. That's the point. So not only does Jesus represent God's people, but he also represents God's place, which is the second point, God's place. This is a shorter point. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect fellowship with God in his presence. Outside the Garden of Eden, God lived in the midst of his people, in the tabernacle, and later, the temple in Jerusalem. The tabernacle and the temple were the place where God's presence dwelled. That's where people went to go meet with God because they couldn't be in his very presence. Right? That's why you have the whole sacrificial system set up in the Old Testament. That sacrifices had to be made in order to purify sins by the blood of animals in order for people to be able to enter in to God's presence. But yet God dwelled in the midst of his people, among his people. He dwelled among them in the tabernacle, in the tent. From his presence, he revealed his will. From his presence, he poured out blessing upon his people. However, God was not bound to that earthly temple. He wasn't bound to the tabernacle, right? His presence in it wasn't guaranteed. He could leave if he wanted to. We see that very thing happen in Ezekiel chapter 10 because the people disobeyed God and lived in rampant wickedness and adultery before God. Yet the tabernacle and the temple foreshadow what we ultimately receive in Christ. They were only a foreshadowing of what we receive in Christ. And so Jesus is the true tabernacle. He is the true temple. That's the point of God's place. He is the place where we can enter into God's presence because he's not only just truly human, he is also fully God, where God's presence dwells bodily in Christ. God has drawn near to us in Jesus. And so in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 14, John tells us, that the word became flesh and dwelt, or literally the word is tabernacled among us. And John identifies this with the word that became flesh, who is Jesus. In John 2, we see people worshiping, worship, rather than God. Think about that. They're worshiping worship rather than God. They thought it was about sacrificing the animals, all the other stuff going on. That's why all the businesses are in the temple. And Jesus comes into the temple, and he clears out the temple because of false worship that's going on, because he's trying to restore true worship in the temple. Some of the Jews, they get upset. They challenge Jesus. They want him to prove that he's got the authority to come into the temple 
and just wipe everything out, clear everything out. How does he prove it? Well, Jesus doesn't apologize and say, oh, my bad, guys, I was just a little angry, you know, about this. I'm sorry about that. He doesn't give a fake ID, false credentials. He doesn't do that. What does he say? Someone read John 2, 19 through 21. John chapter 2, 19 through 21. Jews are asking where in the world Jesus gets this authority. Yeah, you got to love how just random, like, conversationalist Jesus was, right? And just how awkward it probably would have been. You know, he just goes straight to, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And you're kind of like, what does that have to do with anything, you know? Uh, and yet they totally go along with it. Well, we took 46 years to build this temple, right? But what are the Jews assuming, right? The Jews are assuming that Jesus was speaking about the temple building. But Jesus is speaking about the temple body. He's speaking about his very body, the temple of his body. The point being made is the temple wasn't an end in itself. It was temporary. However, through Jesus' death and resurrection, something better has arrived. Jesus is the true temple of God. That's what he's trying, it's what he's helping us to see. He is the very place where God's presence dwells bodily and where we go to meet with God. No longer do we need a building to meet with God. We go to Jesus. So what does this mean for us? This means that we no longer go to a building, nor do we have to go to a priest or anything else to meet with God. Instead, we go to Jesus. I love how the late R.C. Sproul said this. He said, Christ is the temple, and all men are commanded to come to him in order to what? In order to worship and serve the one true God. So are you looking to anything outside of Christ to meet with God? Do you look to passionate music to experience God? Do you look to a certain kind of setting, such as a retreat or a camp, in order to meet with God? I understand, I'm not saying, ultimately, that you can't meet with the Lord at a camp or a retreat or even in passionate music. I'm not saying that. It's just that oftentimes those settings are ones that evoke a certain kind of response out of us rather than pointing us to Jesus, who is the true temple, where we go to meet with God. Ultimately, worship isn't solely about one's passion or a place. It's about a person. That's what worship's all about. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman in John 4, then the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So those who worship in spirit and truth are made new by the Spirit when they're united to Christ through faith. And the spirit of truth empowers us with the word of truth in the scriptures who testify to the truth who is Christ. And so we worship and serve the one true God and the spirit and truth by worshiping Christ. That's how we do that. That's what Jesus is wanting us to see. We do it with our heads and our hearts. I love this, this quote from a pastor. He says, truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy. That just means, orthodoxy just means sound doctrine. That's all that means. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy, and a church full or half full 
of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. And this is the line I think that's helpful. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. That's how we worship in spirit and truth. We go to Christ with our hearts and our heads. So no longer do we go to a place to worship God, we go to a person. He secures this through his death and resurrection, which brings up our final point, God's rule and blessing. So at this point, we've got to ask ourselves how Jesus actually introduces the new covenant. How does he fulfill the new covenant? How is that accomplished? That's what we've got to think about right here. And the first act aspect of how Jesus introduces the new covenant, secures our salvation, and then establishes God's rule in the hearts of man, he does that through him being the true high priest. So for Israel, blood was a vivid reminder of their relationship with God. To dwell in God's presence, blood had to be shed in order to pay for sin so that you could be in the presence of God. And those who offered the sacrifices of animals to God on behalf of his people were known as the priest. The high priest would enter God's presence, president, God's presence uh, once a year to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. However, though that blood was shed over and over and over again, daily, though that blood was shed over and over again, it was never enough to fully pay for sin. As it's been said, the sacrificial system was like trying to duct tape a breach in Hoover Dam. It's impossible. You can't duct tape a breach in that dam, right? That was the point. God intended for the old sacrificial system with the priesthood to point his people to something better. So let's read Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. We're finishing up right here. Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. When you're there, go ahead and read verses 11 through 15. Aiden, you want to grab that? All right, Jesus right here is showing us, well, not Jesus is showing us, the author of Hebrews is showing us that Jesus' own sacrifice, that he is the great high priest who offered up his own blood before God, sacrificing himself to pay for our sin. So how was his blood better than other animals? How would you answer that? How is his blood better than animals? Anybody want to give a stab? Mason? Okay. Yep. Okay. 
All right, so he was truly human. So in order to pay for human sin, we need to have somebody who was truly human, meaning he was perfectly human, okay? He was that. What else? What else was he? He was fully God. He was able to be able to do it, right? He's sinless. He's without blemish. He's the perfect lamb of God. Jesus' blood for us, shed for us, solves the problem of sin once and for all time. No longer has there got to be a sacrificial system where you've got to offer up sacrifices daily in order to pay for sin. He solves it by his own blood. Jesus says to his disciples as he institutes the Lord's Supper, for this is the blood, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His death and resurrection ultimately secures the forgiveness of sins. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. For what purpose? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Jesus, all who repent and trust in him receive forgiveness of sins and have a right relationship with God. In Hebrews 9, verse 15, not only is he the high priest, he is now the mediator between God and man, the mediator of a new covenant, that those who, could, who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So if we wrestle with the cost of following Jesus, right? If you wrestle with what that cost of following Jesus actually is going to look like on campus, then don't forget what your sin ultimately cost God to have you for himself. As you're wrestling with like, man, what is it going to look like for me to follow Jesus and the cost I'm going to incur in doing so? When you do so, you also remind yourself of what it costs God to give up his own son to have you for himself. It cost him his one and only son. It makes any cost that we bear in following Jesus a reward. There is no greater cost than what Jesus paid to bring you to God. And that's glorious good news. Because not only did Jesus bring us to God through his death, he also rose from the grave and is now the king who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Right? He is now the king who reigns and rules for God. Jesus is the true king. As we learned in God's covenant with David, God's promises would be fulfilled by a new king who is a descendant of David. Jesus is the son of David, the king who would establish God's rule and introduce the new covenant age in which the effects of evil would be reversed. The kingdom of God has now come because God's king has come. Jesus mocked coronation at his death with the sign above his head on the cross that read the king of the Jews was all irony. <laughs> It was all irony. They were, they were practicing a mock coronation with a crown of thorns around his head, a purple robe, and sticking up king of the Jews, right? And saying, hail, king of the Jews. And yet, to their chagrin, to their surprise, that's exactly what it was. It was a coronation service. As one author put it, a higher power presided over that ceremony, and he converted it into a real coronation. That crown of thorns was indeed the diadem of empire. That purple robe was the badge of royalty. That fragile reed that he held was the symbol of unbounded power, and that cross, the throne of dominion, which would never end. So what some to believe to be a moment of weakness actually turned out to be one of the greatest victories, where he disarmed all rulers and powers and put them to open shame through his own death. He is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the seed of the serpent through his death on the cross. He rose, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. No longer is he just the Son of God, now he is the Son of God in power who rules 
over everything. Through this achievement, he is the source now of all of God's blessing, which is the final thing. In Jesus, the weary and burdened receive rest, which is the goal of creation. And so Adam and Eve enjoyed this rest in God's presence before the fall. The Israelites knew it partially in the promised land when the Lord gave the peace for which ultimately came in Solomon's reign. Right? So they knew that partially, but they didn't know it fully. However, these pale in comparison to what God has now given to us in Christ. In Christ, we have rest for our souls, no matter how harsh the difficulty we're facing. We can rest in him. Through his resurrection, a new age is dawn, where all those who trust in him are now made a new creation, who live for a new purpose, with new desires, and a new identity as citizens of a new kingdom. That's what Christ brings in. So what does this mean for us? It means that we need to ask ourselves, what in the world are we resting in? What are we resting in? Are you resting in your education, right? To give you the job that you want rather than resting in the Lord's mercy to provide for you? Are you resting in a relationship to bring you what only Christ can offer you? Are you resting in something that you've done before God to give you a greater standing before God than the one you already have. Ultimately, we rest by submitting to the king. That's how we rest. We submit to the king. Rest reveals what you're submitting to, and we rest by living in obedience to Christ. Obedience isn't there to earn God's favor. It's actually just to live out of the favor you already have with God. That's what obedience is. It's how we live under Jesus' rule in his reign. And we do that when our souls rest from seeking rest and what will ultimately make us restless. The new covenant is the climax of God's saving work among his people. It represents the fulfillment of God's previous covenants. And as we've seen, all the promises of God's kingdom are fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is God's people. He is God's place. He is God's rule and reign and the source of all blessing for God's people. And so next week, we're going to look, about, we're going to look more at how that relates to us as the new covenant people of God and all the blessings that we receive in Christ. Today we looked at what he accomplished in order to introduce and fulfill the new covenant. All right, I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna go to discussion groups. Father, we give praise to you that in Christ, your people, your rule and reign, your place finds its fulfillment. So Lord, we pray that we would look to him who succeeds where we fail, that we would go to him to meet with you and, Lord, that we would live under his rule and reign by living and submitting to his rule and reign, by living in obedience to him, knowing that that is actually the good life. That's the, the life of true blessing for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.